Welcome to another episode of the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, part of the Talent 409 Network, where listeners can learn about leadership and other related attributes from former and current successful business people, coaches, and athletes. At Talent 409, we help athletes discover their talent altitude through workshops and seminars while increasing their opportunities for success on and off the field. In addition to athletes, we work with coaches, administrators, and business professionals to enhance their education on how they can positively impact the performance of their teams and programs. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, all at Talent409, and connect with me on Twitter, at ColinTalent409. You can also check out the new Dynamic Leaders Facebook group. Type in Dynamic Leaders in your search bar and ask for an invitation to this exclusive group full of leading professionals. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. If you have time, please take a minute and give it a five-star rating and review. Help us grow and keep the podcast content strong. These ratings really do help others find the show and consume the content, and I appreciate you taking time to do this as well as being loyal listeners to the pod. On today's episode of the podcast, I have Charlotte's own Calvin Brock. Calvin is a former boxer who competed for the world heavyweight title. He is now the founder of Jack and Landlords, which is a company he founded in Charlotte in 2014. I want to apologize before we get into this podcast. You're going to hear a little distortion from my mic. Another rookie mistake. I've been putting together a list of common podcasting errors that I think I'm going to try to write a little book that might help out some other podcasters who are getting started and trying to figure this out on their own as well. But luckily, the distortion only comes from my mic. Calvin sounds great, and he is the guest. You do far less listening for me than you do the guest. So it's still a really great episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. But first, let's sit back, relax, and let's jam with the White Stripes. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have an awesome guest with me, Charlotte's own Kelvin Brock. Kelvin, welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. This is a really exciting conversation for me because you're coming from a different sport background than anyone I've had on in past episodes and also doing some really great things in your life now after sports that we'll get to here in a minute. But before we get too far away, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us who are you? I am Calvin Brock, the former number one world ranked heavyweight in the world that challenged Vladimir Klitschko's heavyweight world championship at Madison Square Garden and 2000 Olympian for this Sydney Australia Olympics in year 2000. And uh, entrepreneur, speaker, philanthropist, husband, father, 
Those are the things that I am. That's who I am. So many things to unwrap there, obviously. Let's start, let's go way back to when you were a kid. I read about you got your first pair of boxing gloves when you were eight years old. Tell us about what that experience was like. Were you excited to, did you know anything about boxing before then? Did you have any aspirations to get into boxing when you were a kid or was that kind of the genesis of it all? I was eight years old. Uh, I didn't watch boxing, had no thought of boxing. It's just that a relative of mine came in and gave me two sets of boxing gloves for a Christmas present. And I only had a sister, so I, I had to box with my neighborhood friends and fell in love with it. And then I took it up as a sport once I turned 12 and stuck with it with the aspirations of going to the Olympics and then making it to the top in the pros. And that's what I did. So that was something you identified pretty early then, that you wanted to not only do boxing for fun or for physical fitness or just to play a sport, but this was something you wanted to you wanted to get to the Olympic level, like the highest levels of competition. I did. I felt like that was what God had purpose for me to do in my early life. And obviously it, it worked out. So I don't think I missed God on that. Um, I didn't win a gold medal, and neither did I become world champion in the pros, but I made it to the elite level, number one in both of them, the amateurs and the pros. And it's it's paid off. It's even carried on into my life today, what I did as a boxer. Now, did your family have any athletic background? Like, did your parents or any family members, did they participate or get to any high levels in sports before you, or were you kind of the first person to get to that point? I am the first person. My dad wasn't an athlete, neither was my mom. I don't come from an athletic family. Uh, I'm pretty much the only athlete on both sides of my family. So, When you first started fighting, you struggled. You know, When you were an amateur, you struggled. I think you, I read that you lost your first handful of fights before you finally had your breakthrough. Was there ever a moment when you were first getting started that you said, you know, maybe... Maybe this Olympic dream isn't ever going to happen, or was it just you know, full steam ahead? You were so focused that those fights didn't that you ended up losing. They didn't really bother you as much. It didn't bother me that much. I lost my first six boxing matches. I had that belief in my heart, although I was told to quit by my mom, dad, officials, parents. The sport wasn't cut out for me because obviously I had lost my first six. I think I really had the worst beginning in boxing that, that any other boxer I've ever seen in my entire career, my entire life. And uh, But just like anything else, keep doing it. And then all of a sudden, I just came around and took leaps and bounds and getting better and started winning and, and hitting long winning streaks. Now, you mentioned that you know, neither of your parents were really athletes, but... I think your father was instrumental in you getting to that next level and just breaking through and having success at the amateur level in the first place. What was that like knowing that, you know, your parents didn't come from an athletic background, you were blazing your own trail, doing something different, but they still supported you and were there and wanted to see you succeed. What did that feel like for you? Well, yes, my parents have always been great parents. They never made me do anything I didn't want to do. And they've always supported me in anything and everything I wanted to do. And they knew that I wanted to do boxing very bad. If I wasn't willing to quit, then they weren't going to quit either. 
And my dad, what happened was, I was trained by an 80-year-old man that was too old to really show me anything. And I lost my first four boxing matches with him. So my dad took me to another gym in the city. And then that coach stopped training. So my dad ordered boxing instructional videotapes from a, a boxing catalog. And he started training me himself. So my dad became my amateur boxing coach. How long did your dad stick by you as far as like being the main guy to coach you and train you like when uh, i imagine obviously when you got to the professional ranks you might have needed a little bit more of a professional advice and everything but still have him in your corner per se but how long was your dad like the guy that you know got you to the to the point where you could even think about being a professional 12 years my whole entire amateur career wow pretty much you know he was right there Wow, awesome. And then when you transitioned to the professional ranks, were you able to bring him along, you know, even if he wasn't, you know, the main guy in in the crew, were you able to get him into your entourage or how did that work? After I got back out of the Olympics, after I returned home and started looking to turn professionals, then we both knew that I needed more than what my dad is because my dad don't have any experience in Boston on his own and neither had he been an apprentice under someone else. He wasn't a prodigy of, of, of anyone else. So we made it just off of, you know, videotapes and uh, God helping a lot of hard work and my talent. So we knew we needed more than that to make it to the top of the pros. So I ended up landing with uh, Tom Ginkello out of Pittsburgh. And so my dad, he wanted to stay in the picture. So we made him a manager because I had a promoter, I had the right trainer. So we figured, okay, I just let him be my manager, my communicator with my promoter and schedule my boxing matches and hell in my career and negotiations and things. So he stayed on as that aspect. And then as a corner man, since he knew me so well, he was in all of my boxing matches as a professional, as a corner man. Very cool. Now, your Olympic career starts before your professional career, which is unique in some ways, but there's a lot of sports where you kind of break through at the Olympic level first and boxing is seems to be one of those sports where you can have that opportunity to break through first at the Olympic level. You participated in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, Australia. You said earlier in the conversation that that was a, a great experience for you and really kind of catapulted what you did for the next six or seven years after that in your professional career, but for those of us that, that have never had an opportunity to experience the Olympics, and even though you didn't win a gold medal, can you still tell us about, I mean, it had to be a thrilling experience. Just give us a little bit more insight into what that was like for you. Being a win Olympics is like a surreal experience because that's been the major goal since the first day I walked into the gym. And that's pretty much the goal of every amateur boxer that laces on gloves is to make it to the Olympics. I mean, so few boxers can make it to that level. So to be among the world best and to be in the Olympic Village with all the other athletes that I've been seeing on television, in the NBA, Serena, Venus, Williams, the sisters, and to finally be there, it's like all that pressure is finally gone now. Now all I had to do is just get in here and do my best and whatever my best produces this is it. I'm done after this. And then I'm turning professional. So it's it's, been, it's just a, I can't believe I finally made it here each day that I was there. And I was over there for a whole month. You know, it's a bittersweet experience because 
the Olympics are just is just for champions. Mm-hmm. So when champions show up, everyone thinks that they're going to be the champion of the Olympics or win the gold medal. And when you come up short of the gold medal, then it's a huge letdown. It was a bittersweet, but at the same time, it's what's needed to set a person up to go into the pros as a boxer. So when you were going through that experience, I'm not sure exactly how it works. I imagine that you stay there through the duration, even if you don't win. Uh, you're just there for the other events and to support your country and really take in the Olympics because obviously it's about much more than just your boxing events. What was that like to spend time there You know, after you failed to achieve what your ultimate goal was? I mean, like you said, bittersweet. I, I wouldn't call it... Uh, a true failure by any sense, but uh, there had to be some disappointment, but were you still able to enjoy the experience? Do you think you were able to like really let it sit in, even know that you didn't get exactly what you were looking to do? After I lost, sitting in Australia became probably one of the best vacations that I have ever been on <laughs> in my life. I had an awesome time because I lost my first match. So then I still had a, probably about another 10 days there stay there and I just you know it just turned into a party then not just for me but for everyone else that lost okay I'm still here at the Olympics and you go out and the infrastructure with their light rail system and the busing and everything everything free to us I really enjoyed the whole Sydney Australia area and uh, had a lot of fun there met a lot of nice people I had a ball I really did and that's the thing about being Olympics too you may lose but then you still at the Olympics, you can go out and enjoy yourself and have a ball. It's over. And knowing that, okay, it's over, but at the same time, it's not over. This is just another start to my professional career. Now, while I was there, as soon as I lost, I started talking to other promoters and managers started entertaining me right there at the Olympics. So, How do you get into the Olympics to begin with? Like, What's the qualifying process for a boxer to be able to compete at that level? It have changed some since I've uh, been to the Olympics, but at that time, only eight boxers in the country in each weight class would go to the Olympic trials. And then the gold medal winner of the trials and the loser's winning bracket, called the consolation bracket, the loser's bracket winner, would go out to a box-off, and then the box-off between those two, the winner of the box-off will make the Olympic team. Then after you make the Olympic team, then you have to qualify your weight class. You would have to go to uh, win one of two All-American tournaments. And All-American consists of North America, South America, and Central America. So all the country Olympians from those American countries come together in those two tournaments. And the winners, well, the finalists would go to the Olympics. So no team has taken a full team since 2000 in boxing to the Olympics since us. Uh, we took a 12-man team. We qualified all 12, uh, 12 of our weight classes. But now, uh, you know, we're fortunate to take six boxes to the Olympics now because not everyone qualified their weight class to get to the Olympics. It's a very lengthy process, and you really had to be more than just the best in the United States. You had to be among the top three in all of America, North, South, and Central. And that's what I was. I, I was the All-America's champion. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I can't even 
imagine what that experience must have been like. And I appreciate you walking us through what it was like for you and all that you were able to take in. I'm sure that's something that you're going to remember forever. What do you think was the biggest difference in your life, the biggest difference prior to you going to the Olympics and what your life was like afterwards? Well, going to the Olympics, uh, I was an amateur. And then after the Olympics, I was a professional. And as a professional, it's just different. You know, the pros is a business. Amateur is just amateur. It's a sport that you enjoy. The professionals, I had to put together a team uh, that consisted of a promoter, manager, trainer, cut man, advisor. And then I had to decide upon all these uh, different entities coming together that's going to get me to the top of the pros. And that is what the Olympus does. The Olympus puts you in the spotlight that all the entities and the people, the team that you need to put together, you can pick and choose who it is to put together to get you to the top. Because if you're not with a promoter that have world champions that's already connected with, in the end, in the boxing industry with television days, then you're pretty much not going to make it to the top because it's all about marketing. So fortunate for me, I was able to put together a team that consisted of a top promoter that were that had world champions. So then I was right there in front of the uh, Showtime, HBO, ESPN, Fox Sports Net executives that will put me on their television networks as well as in front of all that press that kept on writing about me to build me up that awarded me the opportunity to make it into the top 10. Uh, obviously I had to win, but that setup has to be there. That's the biggest thing a boxer needs uh, when coming out of the amateurs and nothing else does it better than the Olympics. When you're putting together a team of trainers, promoters, all these different levels, all these different professions and expertise, how do you go about that process? Like, were these people that you met in Charlotte? Were they people from across the country, across the world? How did you go about assembling that team? Well, usually you already have met most of them because most of them have come to the amateurs to scout out boxers or they've invited you out to their you know, championship boxing matches just to entertain you. You pretty much learn just from being a boxer anyway who is, who are the movers in the industry. Mm-hmm. And it basically comes down to, uh, there aren't a lot of choices, to be quite honest with you. It just basically comes down to getting signed with one of the few and, and choosing who's going to be your manager and your trainer. And, you know, things worked out for me as far as my trainer because I was introduced to my trainer by someone that I was working with at the bank. It was his brother. Really? He came into the gym. He was telling me about him. So, I, you know, he, he had a world champion. His brother had a world champion. I was seeing him on television. And then he had a boxer that was in the Olympic trials. So I got to talk to his brother in person. So I ended up going out to camp with him and I liked him. And so I kept him and I kept him as my trainer. That's so interesting how teams come together, whether it's in professional sports like boxing or in the corporate world, however it is. And it's just always interesting to learn about the dynamics of how you all come together and work together towards that common goal. Obviously, you realize pretty early on in your career that the branding and promotion side of your 
sport of choice, boxing, was really important to the entertainment industry and could really help propel you, your personal image. And what did you learn? So you went to school at UNC Charlotte right here in Charlotte and went to the Belk Business School. What did you learn through your education there that you were able to take with you to that next level when you went professional? One of the, the biggest things that Yoshi Shaw taught me is is you don't accomplish things by yourself. So when we had projects, we never worked on projects alone. It was always was a group grade. Everyone received the same grade. So in a project, you realized that you had to rely on others to do their research to present what they had to uh, give to the group and, and uh, you had to count on each other and it made things easier so they gave me the mind frame of putting the team together knowing that I can't do it alone uh, secondly is the, you know, my education business background you know, I had a business degree you know, it put me in a mind frame okay I don't need anyone managing my money for me or writing checks for me I can handle all of that my own. So I did all my own accounting, my own uh, paying my own taxes and writing out my own checks to all of my team, not my manager getting paid for me and then giving me my money through my manager. No, a lot of bosses operate that way, but that's how a lot of bosses get taken. I was never taken in the professionals because I handled all my own money and I was in on all negotiations, read all my own contracts. I didn't have to just take anybody out face value now how did you find or how did you i guess manage your time because i think a lot of times outside of the legalities of what contracts look like and the big money that's involved in sports these days one of the reasons that agents exist is because the athletes themselves are using their time to train and to prepare for their sport of choice how are you able to do it all like do that administrative work, also train, also compete, also, you know, probably have somewhat of a family life as well. How do you do all that and be as successful as you were? Well, you know what? It's not so hard as just a professional because that's all you're doing. Now, it was very hard doing it as an amateur because I'm training like a professional because amateurs train just as hard as these professionals do, to tell you the truth. I was training as an amateur, and I was going to school full-time, taking on a 15-hour course load and traveling. That was a crazy lot. I stayed tired, tremendously tired all the time. Some people still don't, don't know how I did it, but I did it. And then when I turned professional, though, I mean, I box maybe like six times a year. I'm just in and out of camp, but I'm just focusing on one thing, my professional career. So as far as handling the negotiations and communication with my promoter and manager, that's what my manager did, my dad. My dad was someone I could trust to handle those things for me and then just be that liaison between my promoter and me. And he was my dad, so I see someone I talk to every day anyway. That part was easy. Interesting. So let's talk then a little bit more about your professional career. It was quite decorated. 33 total fights, 31 wins, 23 wins by knockout. You mentioned earlier that you challenged for the heavyweight title you fought. I believe you say his name, Vladimir Klitschko. Yeah, at MSG in 2006. You lost in the seventh round. That was your first career loss. 
take us back to that moment. What was it like? How did you handle it? And how did you move forward? Well, it's important for one thing to stay undefeated and become world champion in boxing with an undefeated record. In boxing, there isn't no middle for the, for the most part. It's either you're making a lot of money or you're not making any money. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately for me, I had a promoter and, you know, and everything. I was getting paid, you know, decently enough to make a living. But I really didn't get into making the big money until I started boxing on HBO Showtime and then challenging for the heavyweight championship. The thing is, once you're there, you're number one in the world, you're in the championship, it's almost like being at the Olympics. You're there, and all the pressure is gone. But at the same time, if I win it, then my future is just a brighter. Whereas if I lose, then it's almost like losing in the Olympics. I'm going to miss out on some big signing bonuses and you know, some my start going to be a little bit lower than what it would be had I won a gold medal. So if I lost in the world championship, then I know then, okay, it's going to take me a couple of years to get back to the title. Now I go from making huge money to making little money again. It drops just like that. That was the biggest, biggest pressure going into the championship. But as been undefeated, no one could tell me that I wasn't going to win. Just like everyone thinks they're going to win the Olympics, I thought I was going to be world champion and beat Vladimir Klitschko because I had been beat before. And unfortunately, you know, after I lost, it's a huge disappointment. It's a huge letdown. And, you know, I get back to my dressing room and realize that, you know, I just didn't lose, but I was beat. I came to have a lot of respect for Vladimir. He stayed champion for almost 10 years, defended his title for like 20-something times. So, obviously, I didn't lose to a chump. Um, champion, I lost to a, uh, <laughs> a legend. Sure. Yeah, so they kind of, you know, make it not so bad. Is that, you know, I just didn't lose to anyone. I lost to uh, an all time great. Quick break to talk about our sponsor, Sweat with Studs. Are you looking to get in better shape without the large investments of time and money that come with the gym membership? Sweat with Studs Hit at Home program is the answer for you. Hit at Home is a downloadable PDF that guides you through one month of five workouts per week that don't require any equipment. And if you loved Hit at Home, there's also a version two with totally new workouts. As a loyal listener to the pod, you can get $10 off each of these programs with the code DYNAMIC, which brings the cost down to $20 per program. Go to www.sweatwithstods.com, put in that dynamic code at checkout and figure out what you can do with $20 in 30 days. And now back to the pot. Absolutely. And you brought up a really interesting point. I think a lot of times when people from the outside look at athletes, it doesn't matter what sport it is. All they think about is gobs of money and all the celebrity status, the entertainment, you know, they're taking pictures with celebrities and famous people and driving fancy cars and everything. But boxing is quite different in the sense that, like you mentioned, there's really only two levels. Either you're made it and you're making lots of money or you're really struggling, even though you're considered at that professional level and you're just really scraping by. Like I think about the scene from Rocky, the first Rocky movie where 
he's fighting in the basement of some building in the beginning of the movie. And then he goes to the docks to do his job on the side or whatever to make a little bit of money so he can pay rent for his apartment. And he's really struggling. And I know that's just a movie, but I think that's honestly what a lot of boxers go through. What do you think? Is there ever going to be a way that boxing as a sport can get to that point where they can have more of a middle class per se, where they can have people who don't necessarily need to get to the heavyweight level or the top levels of whatever their weight division is to make all the money. And then those people that haven't gotten there are scraping by working multiple jobs. Like, is there a way to get to that point where there's there's more money coming into the sport? I think the best way to get more money coming to the sport is to start it off and get into more schools, more colleges. I know I've been doing some research for the boxing club that I'm president over here in Charlotte for our boxers to have a path to college. They're researching their more, more universities that are incorporating boxing and giving scholarships for boxing. So I think that if boxing can become more popular with the universities and school systems, then the television and the sponsorships will get behind it to make it so that when they go professional, then they can go professional with the money and all in one organization. See, there needs to be a pension set up and one organization set up and not several organizations the way it is now. It's tough. I don't think it would be for everybody that's turned professional, but it would be for the elite ones, Mm -hmm. the chosen few, the same way all the rest of these professional franchises have to just nothing but the elite and the pros. Boston would have to have it so that the elite, you have to come out in the Olympics or come out of a world championships team or something to even be considered in this elite class where you can make that living as a professional. Yeah, and that's another interesting point that you make. And through my research, I mean, I can definitely attest to the fact that either at the high school level or the collegiate level and the programs that I've interacted with, very rarely do I see even a boxing club, uh, much less like a varsity level sport, either at the high school or collegiate level. Do you think boxing suffers from some of the same challenges that football does with concussions and different things like that. Do you think that's scaring away people from not only participating in it, but potentially investing into it for the long-term future of the sport? I don't think so. I think boxing is way safer than football. I mean, football, man, you get injury upon injury upon injury. Boxing is going by itself, you know, in the national tournament, five, to, uh, five days, five times in six days, and come out, you know, unscathed. You know, um, I know I used to. It's, it's rare that bosses even, even get concussions. It's, you know, concussions not an ongoing occurrence in boxing. It's, you know, it's a rare occurrence. Unlike football, you know, it's the same sport. I mean, we, I had like 200 amateur boxing matches and 33 professionals, and that included all the sparring sessions and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I won't talk, think clear, and nothing is the matter with me. A lot of football players are going to walk around and with their body aching and pain for the rest of their life. Sure. Some of them got concussions and brain damage. Um, Boston is a way safer of a sport than football because I think it's more control on the impact. I mean, it's just more control. Is a referee there, rules, um, 
and then if you're good, you learn how not to get hit. I mean, it's just, I don't think that's what's deterring the sport away. I think what it is, it's a private sport mm-hmm. that's not incorporated in schools, YMCAs, the uh, county parks and recs. It just needs to get more incorporated and get, you know, into the systems that the other sports are already in. Do you think that it's also a product of, you know, a lot of boxing matches, especially the coveted ones and even the, you know, things that have come as a result of boxing, like MMA fighting and all those different things are pay-per-view. Like you have to pay to watch them and they're on late at night and your kids can't just flip on ESPN during the middle of the day and watch a boxing match like you can with basketball or football or something like that. Do you think that hurts the popularity and the growth of the sport as well? Just not having the public image, you know, always being front of mind and not having as much visibility overall. You know what? That hurts. That hurts. But what hurt boxing the most is bad decisions. Because boxing used to fall underneath the um, AAU. At one time, the Olympics was thinking about taking Boston out of the Olympics. I mean, the Olympic Committee was thinking about taking Boston out of the Olympics because of controversial decisions. Boston is the only sport that come up with controversial decisions where the public think that a person won the Boston match, but they lost due to the judges and due to politics and uh, conspiracies or whatever that may take place and cause a bad decision. And the uh, television has, you know, turned away from it. AAU turned away from it. The rep is worth thinking about turning away from it. That's what hurt the sport of boxing. Boxing hurt boxing. If boxing was a more feral sport, then I think we would be just as big as the rest of the sports out here because boxing and baseball used to be the two biggest sports mm-hmm. in the nation. And boxing is still probably the second or third largest sport in the world, just not over here in the U.S. Yeah, and I think that baseball and boxing, it's interesting that you brought that up. I think they suffer from a lot of the same issues of being too traditional with the way that they do things. Like they don't want to change the way that they do fights and baseball doesn't want to change the way that they play their games because that's how they've been doing it for so long. And at one point, like you said, they were both one of the, if not the most popular sports in America, much less, you know, across the world. And I I just wonder if, you know, maybe that plays into it a little bit, the traditionalist aspect of it that, you know, you don't want to lose that, that purity and you don't want to turn into, you know, WWE obviously either, but I think there are ways that you can innovate and bring a little bit more interest to the sport that, could get people interested and could bring it back to the AAU levels and bring it back to the youth levels. And because that's obviously where everything's going to start, right? You need to build that pipeline and that funnel with the younger kids. So that by the time they get to the point where they can compete at a professional level, the product is there, they've had the practice and they can really take advantage of all the resources that boxing could provide. So really interesting conversation. I'm sure you have a lot of different ideas and and different things that we could go on forever about, but I want to take the conversation back to your professional career. After that fight at MSG for the heavyweight title, you move on, you win a couple more fights and you get to the point in November of 2007 
where you suffer what is your second career loss and ends up being your final fight in your professional career to Eddie Chambers. During that fight, you suffered some damage in your right eye. Can you explain to us what happened? Yeah, actually, I suffered the damage to my eye prior to the Boston match, training for the Boston match when I suffered the damage. But, uh, you know, it was a diagnosis at that time. So to let the uh, the um, promoter's insurance pay for it, I just say it happened during the Boston match because mm-hmm. it was a diagnosis to after the Boston match. So the Boston match created for the detached retina. That last Boston match against Andy Chambers, that's a prime example of what I just said earlier. That's a Boston match that I won that, didn't get, that I didn't get the decision. But everyone that saw it, even Andy Chambers himself, thought he had lost that match. But because I was boxing on his promoter's card, then somehow um, he got to choose all the judges. And, you know, they came on Eddie Chambers' away. I mean, Eddie Chambers' away. The decision went his way in a split decision. But, you know, I suffered a detached retina training for that boxing match. And after that, uh, I went in to get my retina attached back. Supposed to uh, have been able to see just as clear as I was going in. But I came out blind in the right eye for somehow. And the doctors can't explain why I don't see out my right eye. They think that I must have suffered some kind of some nerve damage that just messed up my retinas somehow so I can't see out of them. So that ended my career right there. Before that, you went in to have surgery. And before that, what ended up being your final fight, did that injury or I don't want to call it an injury, but you mentioned that you had at least noticed that there was something up in, in your eye or something going on, but it didn't affect you, it seems like, right? Like you were able to still do everything and train and see clearly and obviously fight. Yeah, it, you know what? During the Boston match, I was I was seeing different on both eyes. Uh, it was affecting me a little bit. You know, I, I knew going in that I probably had a detached retina or something. It's getting you light flashes that will come out of nowhere. These floaters come out of some, come out of nowhere. And I knew something was up, but I thought that you know I could still get through the boxing match and still win, and then get it taken care of. So win or loss, everything was still been the same. So that surgery is what did the damage more so than anything. I was seeing clear as day going to the surgery. I came out of surgery and I'd be able to see it all. And I still think about that almost every day too. Is that frustrating for you to know that you probably had some fights left in you and some other things that you were looking to accomplish and because of a botched surgery, you had to call it quits a little earlier than anticipated? I think the biggest thing that bothers me is I don't see the same on both my eyes. I got to live with this blindness in my right eye because it's not 100% blind. I can see it like an image, not distinctively, but the color and the image of it. But, you know, so... I've had to adapt to seeing clear out of one eye and blotched in the other eye. So I think that bothers me more. The reason why I'm not so bothered about the career is right after that surgery, about four months later, I had to have a rotator cuff surgery. I fought that fight with a torn rotator cuff with Eddie Chambers. I fought through a, you know, some extraneous pain. Wow. I still thought I won. And that shoulder surgery would have took me out for about a year at least. And that would have set me a year behind. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, Vladimir Klitschko, he reigned for nine years, and I wanted to come close to beating him. And I really 
even looking back at the film, I really can't come up with a way how I think I would have been able to beat him. So if I couldn't beat Vladimir Klitschko and become world champion, then there was no need for me to continue boxing for that reason alone if I can't beat the world champion. So I look at it, it worked out for good that I can't box, but at the same time, I still like to be able to see at my right eye goal. You finish up your boxing career, have to figure out <laughs> what life after sports is going to look like. Tell us about what that experience was like. Were you scared? Did you know what you wanted to do? I mean, uh, I know you basically there was like a, you boxed for about six years, six plus years professionally. And then it, I think there's about a, a three, four year period where you're doing some real estate and sales work before you get into the next phases of your life. Can you tell us a little bit about what that, that experience was like and that transition? Yes. Yeah, so I remember back when I was boxing, I used to go to networking events sometimes, you know, uh, not even networking events, just some, some events with other professional athletes, former football players, some former basketball player, predominantly football, basically. And I heard these guys say that their career ended shortly due to, or short due to an injury in football. And they said, hey, nothing is harder than making a transition from a professional athlete before you're ready to retire into the professionals. It's crazy tough, you know. Probably just don't understand. It's real hard, hard, hard making a transition to, to making a living or something else. So when I got to experience that, because I really couldn't understand what they were saying at that time and how, how they felt. But when it happened to me, then here it is in the day's notice that I can't continue on with my career. What do I do now? My whole life has been nothing but a dream of just doing my sport. That's all I had to worry about. I never had a dream of doing anything else, no passion for anything else. So here I am. Yeah, I'm just like a person stuck out in the middle of the ocean, thrown overboard. <laughs> And don't have a place to go. I'm just, I'm just waiting in the water. I felt because, like, what do I do? I have no passion, no ambition for anything. I don't know anything. I'm behind the times and tech knowledge, behind the times where I don't have any work experience. I can't go out here and get a job to pay me enough to take care of all the assets that I've accumulated in the family and everything. And I know that, okay. Um, I'm fine now for, for a few years because of the money I made in boxing, but I didn't make it enough money where I never have to work again. I don't have endorsements. You have all those things to think about. Then you have like, okay, I don't want to go work for thirty or forty thousand dollars. That's like working for free. Instead of you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would have that mindset of I, I don't know. It's just it's tough, man. It's tough. So you know. At that time, I like you know most most of everything. I got to start my own business, find a product or service to sell. So I started out with commercial real estate brokerage, and, and then the recession came in. My my career ended at the, at the end of two thousand seven, and then the recession came in in two thousand eight, eight nine ten, and it, it was, nobody was hiring. Real estate wasn't selling. The market was down. It could have been a worse time in my life to get put out my career then. So I ended up leaving a commercial real estate brokerage and getting open the door to roofing sales because the insurance was paying homeowners to get new roof replacements uh, for hail and wind damage. So my dad was a licensed general contractor, so I started up a 
uh, roofer side for his company, and that still exists to this day. So I still work with my dad roofing. That kind of took off, and it started, you know, paying me a real good amount of uh, you know, money, pay all my bills and everything, take care of my family. And, you know, things have been well for the past, you know, 10 years. I read in an interview that you've obviously seen a lot of other athletes fail to adjust to life after sports. And it was difficult for you. It was difficult for me. I think we all experience some level of difficulty, especially if we need to go out and make money. Like we can't live on what we did in the past. Or, I mean, myself, I didn't make it to the professional rank, so I didn't make any money. So I've read that advice that, and and you said in addition to that, that you need to be able to find something to commit to, like you do as an athlete on a field, on a court, or in a ring. What do you think is a practical way for maybe a college graduate or somebody who's finishing up their professional career and you know hasn't made enough money to live off that for the rest of their life? What's some practical advice that you could tell them to find something that gives them that same feeling that athletics and competition gives them like to find a work or some type of industry that they will be able to commit to at that same level that they did when they were an athlete. Just get started at something. I mean, because there are so many things out here that don't know even exist that just like you know, this really, really roofing was my passion. My passion now is what took the place of is Jack and Landlords, mm-hmm. the company that I'm building now that I started with the inception of it in 2012 and opened the doors up in 2014, National Guarantee Company. But i talk about that later. That's that's my new passion. Everything else then, before that, was just, I was still searching. And I had to pray. And that passion came from God the same way it came, that God gave me boxing. So I had to ask God to give me that new purpose for my life. But to answer the question, yeah, you got to ask God first, but then just get busy. Before I got into real estate, I tried being a state farm agency. That didn't work out. Then I got into real estate. Then when real estate wasn't paying the bills, I worked in a restaurant for nine weeks. There was that um, Longhorn restaurant, the addition manager. I knew him from boxing, and he was thought about trying to make me a, a restaurant manager. So I didn't know what I liked, man. No money in it, but there was something to do, something to learn. You know, something I haven't done before. So I did it for about nine weeks. That didn't work out. Then I even um, did a mortgages, loan officer a little bit for Wells Fargo. Then I uh, did some mortgage modifications for this other company named NACA. Then I, you know, did some other financing for this other company. And then I even sold food for this one company, this this nationwide company called Gordon Food Service, our wholesale food distributor. And uh, and then so look. A lot of the stuff I did around along while I was doing roofing, just to branch out and just learn what it is that I want to do. And so I really didn't find what I wanted to do until I accepted the company of Jack and Landlords. And, they, and what made me get Jack and Landlords is I was a commercial real estate broker during the recession, and a lot of tenants' deals would fall through because of a security deposit. They thought this security deposit would, would be better used for moving costs rather than let it sit into the escrow account of the broker. So I still thought that the security deposit was needed in commercial, but not in residential. I looked at residential and come to realize that a lot of landlords were moving away from security deposit due to the downsides, that they were having to pay out court damages two to three times the security deposit amount. 
because of um, you know, shortage of escrow interest and um, disputes. So they were assuming all the risk of leasing with no protection. So that's what made me come up with a guarantee company that would um, give not us the same protection of a security deposit without charging it up front to the tenant. Let the tenant pay for it over 12 months. So starting a commercial would gave me Jack and Lello. So my advice is to people just get started fresh out of college. You know, most of the time they're going to end up having to work someplace anyway because they're going to need the money. It's almost inevitable that, you know what, you're going to get started someplace, even if it's someplace you don't want to something even if it's something that you don't want to do right now money gonna make you have to do something sooner or later that's gonna pretty much up to a industry that you never gave a thought of yeah and i love that you walked us through that so thank you so much because i think it really paints a, a great picture for younger folks or just anybody who's in transition about your journey wasn't linear by any means it wasn't a straight line you tried different industries, you tried different jobs, you learned about different things, all these things that I'm sure make you a better business owner today on top of your professional boxing experience and those life lessons that you learned through athletics and competition. But it's just really interesting how the concept of your business came from something that you were doing to transition, to help yourself pay some bills, and you just overheard a conversation and it sparked this idea for this great company now that's headquartered here in Charlotte and is, you know, making a lot of waves and really growing and everything. So I think it's an awesome story and it's really a testament to your will and to your hard work that you were able to work through that transition period and understand that you were going to take some bumps and bruises much like you did in boxing. And ultimately you've found a lot of success with Jack and Landlords and what you're doing now. So I got a couple more questions here. I know we're a little bit over, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But I got a couple more questions before we let you go here. I'm always interested to learn about people that influence and where business leaders such as yourself or successful athletes, how they get their influences and who they learn from. Are there? Are you a big reader? Do you like listen to podcasts? Where do you get you know your inspiration, or where do you get your knowledge from on a daily basis? I like to read the business uh, part of the newspaper, like the uh, business and the finance area. Basically, you know the Charlotte Business Journal. Uh, I tell people, you know, reading just sports alone is not going to really teach you business. You want to get into the, the, the uh, reading the business and, and learn about the different careers and stuff. That's what pretty much give you the business entrepreneurial mind me because if a person not doesn't have a, a role model in business to, to coach them along the way everybody have to get it from reading yeah that's great uh, I've always loved to read you know especially from newspapers or even online now uh, with that transition is there any like particular influencer like an author or uh, somebody that you follow on social media or something like that, that like really stands out to you in the business world that you take a lot of advice from? No one in particular. I just, one of the people you would call was chief executive officer and president of Bank of America back when I was working at Bank of America. And, and I know to see him come up with one company and become chief executive officer. And then, you know, after he retires, he starts his own, it's not a hedge fund, it's like a capital markets 
Banana capital market is like an um, investment capital. That's what it is. It's like a hedge fund, investment capital firm. Then he goes in and on and up from Bojangles to selling, selling it for a lot of money. And some other companies start up, take over and sell for a lot of money. So he's like a role model. And I never even met him before. The one chance that I was supposed to meet him was back in 2000 when I was working at Bank of America. It was sponsoring me to the Olympics. We were supposed to have a meeting set up, but he had another meeting come up that he had to take presents over our meeting. So I never got to meet him. I've never seen him in person, but I bought his book, you know, and I read about him and things and see him in the papers and stuff. And he's one of the inf- influential people that stands out to me because he's also a big philanthropist too in the area. You see his name in places for giving and everything. So, you know, he's, he's a person that if I had to meet someone, I would love to meet him, sit down, have a conversation with him. Awesome. Now, piggybacking off that, this show is called the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. And at Talent 409, Dynamic Leaders are people that use our seven pillars of leadership. Those seven pillars are courageous, driven, and accountable, motivational, have integrity, have grit, great communicator, and have a high level of emotional intelligence. They're also people that lead on the field, so in their competition, athletics, if they're playing sports, but also off the field, whether they're still competing or they've transitioned like you have to life after sports, so in business, community, family life. Is there one person that you want to shout out today that stands out as a dynamic leader in your own life? Well, I would say it's Hugh McCall. I mean, not my day-to-day life, but... My dad has been a good role model. He he's a gritty, hardworking person. But you know what? I will go back to Hugh McCall because I think he's been successful in the business, but he's successful in, in, in his giving, being a philanthropist. And I think that's the real meaning of success: is set yourself up so you can change, change what needs to be changed around you in your community and people and touch people's lives. And that that I've seen him do. And that's a huge aspiration to me. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that definition that you just went through with us and and him. And that's really cool that you've made that connection together. Before I let you go today, Kelvin, I just want to give you an opportunity. I know we touched a little bit on Jack and Landlords, but I'd love if you want to tell us a little bit more about what's going on with the company, if anything special is coming up or any just last piece of advice that you want to leave us with. Yeah, so Jack Lello just leased this new uh, lease site called Leasing Homes for Rent. It's a lease site that allows property management companies, owners of homes that need property management, and tenants that they come together and you know enter this database. In this database, we feed each of them their lease or what they're looking for and all of them agree to use Jack and Landlords as a guarantee uh, a better way of leasing without a security deposit that increases the retention for the homeowner and property management company and still get the same protection as the, as the security deposit and increase the profits of both the property management company and the homeowner. So. Uh, it's a mutually benefit for all three property management, homeowner, and tenant. And then they all come to green. There's one medium of a website that's a lead site called Lisa Homes for Rent. That's just 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 launched uh, this month. That's a subsidiary of Jack and Landlords. 
Very cool. And for listeners that maybe want to learn more about the company or even just get in touch with you, is there anywhere that you could direct them, either you know, maybe LinkedIn, website, social media? Yes, they can uh, come to my uh, LinkedIn, Calvin Brock, or just go to Jack and Landlords with an S. Jack and spell, spelled out, A-N-D spelled out, Jack and Landlords with an S dot com or leasinghomesforrent.com, and they can learn about you know my companies and what I'm doing. Keep up with me. Awesome. And I'll make sure I put that information in the show notes so it's easy for people to reference if they do want to learn more about the company and get in touch with you, Calvin. But I really appreciate you taking time here to chat with us today and tell us about your story and all your experiences and insights. I think this has been an awesome conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. And again, just really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Colin. Thanks again to Calvin for hopping on the pod today and telling us about his story from boxing to the entrepreneurial world and everything that he's gone through. He's an amazing, inspirational person doing a lot of awesome things in the Charlotte area and beyond. I hope you take an opportunity to check out some of his stuff that he's doing right now and also learn from the stories that he talked about during this podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, Sweat with Stods. Thanks, as always, to you, the listeners, for taking time out of your schedule to listen to the podcast. We are back next week with another guest. 